Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the Truth About Real Estate podcast. Today, today's guest is senior managing partner at Bradley Legal Corp and a leading educator and nationally recognized asset protection attorney. Let's welcome Brian Bradley to the show. Thanks for hey, being thanks. on. Yeah, thanks, Matthew, for having me on and you know putting this all together. And I like the the intro music. Normally, I don't get to hear it. You know, it's, it's dove in before, and I was like, man, this is like the house flow music I listen to. Oh, a lot nice. of times. So, yeah, it started getting me into the into the zone. It but does, I'm just, definitely. yeah. It's an important topic we're going to be talking about, and I just want to let people know, like, I'm not your legal guru. We're going to be talking in generalities, but we're going to have a really fascinating topic, and we're living in a really interesting time um, where all these laws and policies, procedures are drastically changing every day, and people getting sued and being sued that normally wouldn't be getting sued. So protecting your assets and your wealth and your legacy that you're building is very important, and it's more important now than ever. And so I just hope that the concepts we talk about help you and your listeners understand this really Air, interesting area better um, so you can make more informed decisions. And I definitely think I'm going to be blowing up a lot of the status quo and all the misconceptions out there. I can't wait to hear it. I actually really just had a fun conversation right before this, and I'm super excited to have the conversation and learn and teach from your perspective more about what, what it really matters. What is asset protection in the first place? Yeah. And so asset protection is not you know, traditional estate planning. It's not what you would think about and what you did back in the day. And so it's really combining a bunch of different specialties all into one, like tax law, um, estate planning, uh, litigation, uh, and using different combinations of business entities and organizations. And so what we're doing is placing a legal barrier between your assets and your potential creditors before it's needed. And the key word there is before, you know, and that's it. It's just like a barrier, like a safe for your gold or your guns or other valuables. You know, you want to put into that safe and out of your personal name. So that's not easily attached and attacked with a lien and lawsuits or reached. So just like the rich. And, uh, you know, I like I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with who Tony Robbins is, but he has this saying, you know, success leaves clues. And the rich don't own things in their personal name. Their businesses and their estate plans do. So we want to copy the success of the rich and just you know, be the beneficiary in, of those assets and use them and enjoy them, but separate out the liability. And so that's what asset protection is in its nutshell. And it's just lifestyle preservation. So let's talk about that too. I know, for example, like let's just say you're, you know, when people start buying houses for the very first time, first time home buyers, first time investors, they don't really get into the talking about asset protection, LLCs, um, any of that. They just talk about, you know, financially getting a house, investing and putting their name on it, right? Whether it's a trust or LLC or just their personal names, they don't get into this. So how do they really start learning about asset protection and why does it matter for them at that, at that moment of time? And you know, how does it protect them? Yeah. And so that's a great question. I think it's like estate planning. Like people don't think about their mortality and the small amount of time we have on this planet until you are about to kick the bucket. And generally you're not making your estate plan in your wills until then. Uh, and it's too, and it's late. Um, same thing with asset protection. People are thinking about investing metrics, growth, return on investment. Where's the next deal? Where's the next partner? Where's this growing, growing, growing. They don't think about well, what happens when the deal blows up? What happens when I'm being sued? What happens as my liability and wealth start expanding and growing? What do I do on the rainy day? Um, and most people don't also realize it takes a lot of, of time for most people to make over a million dollars net. Um, you know, you can do it fast in real estate, but as a real estate investor, then as you own more units, your liability and your button, think of it as a big red visible button. The more you own, the more visible you are, the bigger your button gets, the more you have liability and risk that you're carrying with you. And so I think most people come to me when a friend or neighbor or business partner gets sued and taken under and they realize, oh my gosh, we are not protected either. And they get that scare factor from somebody else or they just got sued. They're, they're calling me and saying, hey, what can you do for me? I'm being in the middle of being sued. And I have to give them the bad news of protect asset protection wise, not much because you're too far down the rabbit hole at that point. You know, like I can only exempt the current lawsuit and then protects you going forward for anything coming it down, down the line. Um, then the other part of it is just people who realize, hey, I have all this risk and liability. I need some proactive preventative planning. Let's just get this done. It's just more advanced estate planning. So some things to consider too, like for example, as a real estate professional, you know how um, when real estate people talk or even investors talk, first time investors, they're like, oh, I need my core, my core four. The core four never includes legal. 
it includes your agent, you know, your contractor, your property manager, your lender. Where's the, it should be core five then. Where's the legal protection, right? Yeah. And it should be like your CPA, like your wealth CPA. managers and your, and your legal. Because one thing, like any good CPA, because we work with high net worth clients. So like our, our general client profiles, a million dollars more, and we're protecting over like 5 billion worth of assets now. And so like we work with really high risk clients who are investing in a lot of real estate with really knowledgeable CPAs. Any knowledgeable CPA wealth manager will say, the first thing you have to do is protect your assets. Because if you have no assets for us to work our magic on, on the tax line of it, then you're just wasting everybody's time. There's nothing for us to do. So first thing, protect your assets. So that involves a lawyer who specifically focuses on 100% of their time asset protection, because it's not something you can just generally have a knowledge of because you won't have all the um, in detailed tricks and tools that you would be able to use depending on where you are on the sliding scale um, of your wealth. Same thing with like doctors, you know, like you can be a general practitioner doctor, but you're not going to be performing brain surgery or heart cardiovascular surgery. You're going to send them off to a specialist. You need a real estate agent. You need a real estate attorney, depending on what state that you're in, you know, because sometimes some states require real estate attorneys to close deals um, or depending on the size of deal. Your real estate attorney is there for transactional closing. Your asset protection attorney is going to be using LLCs, limited partnerships, management companies, different types of asset protection trusts, which there's a lot of different types of trusts to use. And how we combine them and use them all and, and put them all together is where the protection really comes into play. And you want these things to work you know, when you need them, which is when you're being sued in court. So you don't just want someone to throw them together on the fly who, well, I took a continuing legal education course on LLC. So let's just use an LLC. Sorry, this is not going to cut it. Yeah. So I think some of the starts too, like when you're investing in real estate, even when you start passing a million dollars in equity and net worth, uh, people don't like, there's not enough education around it, legal protection. Like there is out there, but like people don't go actively looking for it because they think of it as a byproduct of real estate investing until they get sued. Like you mentioned, until they get sued. Right. So really right. what you're, what you're saying here is that in the beginning, when you're really building your wealth and you actually have a substantial amount, you really need to start looking, learning, researching, and understanding um, who to talk to and actually create a, and work with an asset protection company because what you guys do is the beforehand product of making sure that they're watching out and protecting their assets upfront beforehand so that they don't get into these issues where they say, oh, after the fact, I got sued already. I need to call a lawyer and go through that. And the risk profile of that is if you had protection beforehand, you're not, you're hopefully in a good substantial way that you're reducing your liability by far rather than getting sued first. Correct. And I would look at it as you need to set these things up before you have your first property. If you're thinking of investing in real estate, the first thing you should be doing is looking at, I need insurance for that property and I need an LLC. If you can't afford those two things, then you shouldn't be buying that property. That just goes into business expenses. You know, um, same thing with starting a business. You know, like If you can't afford to start up your business in an LLC and have a business organization to help separate out liability, then you're not ready to be in business yet. Um, if you can't afford a CPA to help you out and do your taxes and maximize and mitigate your tax filings, then you shouldn't be in business because then you're managing your accounts very poorly and you're not maximizing your profits and revenues and losses and, and what you can mitigate out of there. And so these are the things that when you're just starting out, you should be also thinking about what team members do I need and, and start assembling the team members as well. So part of that too is when people talk to you know agents, investors, they're like, okay, well, you know, you might not need a CPA yet, and they shouldn't really be advising that, but a CPA or a lawyer yet, yeah, because you're just buying a house, you're, you can just put on your name first and then buy it and then figure it out as you go along. Um, and some CPAs say, well, you don't really need the LLC. It's just your first property. It might be your first million dollar property too. Um, you can just start with your name. You're, you're going to save money on not having to have an LLC, having me to do you know two taxes for you. And like, well, what yes, happens no. when you get sued? Yeah, then you lose your, not just that, depending on the lawsuit. I'll give you an example. For example, I have this doctor who's uh, a California resident, all right, investing in Jersey, New Jersey, and has no idea who his tenants are, ended up renting it out to a gang member. And they had a party, had a fight in the party, guns were drawn, people shot, dead body. Who's getting sued for wrongful death? 
mm-hmm. the owner of the property, Deep Pockets, Mr. Doctor in California. And so if he owned that one piece of property, it's his first property potentially in his own personal name. And now you have a multi-million dollar wrongful death lawsuit that you're fighting. Uh, you're going to probably lose that rental property plus your personal house in California um, just because your CPA gave you incorrect. He gave you maybe good tax advice, which even then that would be questionable, but very bad legal advice. And that's where you need to go to the different people and say, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what my intent is in my investment. Now, what do I do from a tax standpoint and a legal standpoint? And then legal needs to talk to taxes and asset protection attorneys generally are also specialists or have LLMs in tax law. And so I generally would like supersede if I have to pull out the card of, you know, the CPA, which is really rare because then you're talking with investment CPAs who are really good at what they do. Um, But you need to have good advice or another really bad um, advice that I see with clients with $100 million real estate portfolios, all stuffed into one S corp. And if you're investing in real estate, I get why your CPA did that from a tax perspective, but from a litigation standpoint, that is one of the worst things that you can do is put real estate into an S corporation. Um, especially then when you come to me and wanting to put those assets into like offshore trust or put more protection around them from an S corp, because then when I dissolve that and take those assets out of that S corp, you're going to be cutting a multi-million dollar check to the IRS. And most people don't have that kind of money just sitting around in their savings account. So there's nothing I can do to protect the assets because they don't have the money to move them. Or the issue is that S corps have shares because they're corporations. Those shares, even if I were to move that S corporation into an offshore trust, can be held and frozen and seized by a U.S. judge. And so it ties up the assets. And so that's where when you're getting legal advice from CPAs, they shouldn't be doing that. They should just be talking to you about taxes and then advising you, hey, you also need to go talk to an asset protection attorney. And then we need to work together on creating the correct system. I completely 100% agree with that. I think CPH, you know, honestly, everyone sticks to only in their best practice, you know, and I understand CPAs know the taxes and all, but they don't know the other side of the real estate laws and litigation laws. Um, you're right in the fact that CPAs, some CPAs do mention that, hey, for me, the CPA, the benefit is, yeah, it's less work for me, less savings for you, but really what happens to the rest of it, all the litigation lawsuits and things like that that go on and like sheltering, right? Uh, so that's part of it. And I see why CPAs say, hey, just do S-Corp is easier, but they don't really think of the things that you just mentioned, all the consequences that could happen in the future. They think about, okay, one S-Corp is easy to manage everything. It's easy for you. You don't have to have, you know, for example, a C-Corp and have to manage all these different properties, right? Correct. That's and, where and, and it's matters. a matter of just tying up because tying up the assets, then they can't be moved because if you move an asset out of an S corporation right there, then you're going to have to end up paying a big check to the IRS. And some CPAs would say this too. Sorry about that. In words, so some CPAs say... Sorry, I didn't know this phone is even on here. <laughs> no worries. So yeah, some CPAs say that... Um, yeah, if you do S corp, it's easier to manage everything here. If you do a C corp, then you're going to have to think about double taxation. Correct. You know? Correct. So then, you know, what do you want as a individual owner? And what individual owners is I don't know. It's whatever you recommend me, right? And that's where and that's where I end up talking to people when they call. Is like one thing they have this misconception that asset protection is tax avoidance. And I'm like, no, that's illegal. That's you know where people go to jail. I'm not going to jail for you. You're going to have to fall in the line of fence of what's more important to you. Is it tax mitigation? Then talk to your CPA. Or is it asset protection to where you know you have high risk and liability and you're concerned about lawsuits? That's asset protection. Asset protection has to be by nature um, tax neutral. Otherwise, you get into tax avoidance and tax hindrance um, issues. Then uh, that's where we try to stay away from that. And, you know, like, for example, when you look online, you see people talk about, like, oh, you know, like Donald Trump or other people, they don't pay taxes on their real estate. They have a whole team to figure it out. So they don't pay taxes. They're not. Yeah, they, legally don't, they legally don't pay taxes. Yeah, legally. Like yeah. Yeah. And so there's a big difference to where it's like there's nothing wrong with not paying taxes if you do it through your CPAs and it's done legally. That's just called being very smart. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like forced depreciation and all the different taxes that wealth managers and CPAs use when you're a real estate investor and business owners, that's one of the whole points of purchasing real estate is the tax advantages, not the cash flow. Cash flow is just the icing on the cake. When you're buying real estate, really all of my really wealthy clients, 
they're looking at it through a tax advantage strategy and forced depreciation. Um, and that's where they're making their money on from the buy. The rest of it is just icing on the cake. So let's talk about that too. Um, a couple of things to mention too. Sometimes when I hear like, oh, insurance agents, you know, like a home insurance agent, they might say, well, you don't need an LLC. You have home insurance. You have like a oh, home yeah. insurance <laughs> up to $5 million and you're covered, right? $250, yeah. a million, you're fine. Why do you need an LLC for? You know? Yeah. So let's, let's blow this one. Out. <laughs> yeah. Let's blow that out before <laughs> we dive in deeper. Let's just start on insurance, I guess, is a great place to start. And then we'll go on to the other ones. Like you got to have insurance. I'm a big component of, like I said, like, especially when you're starting out, have insurance. Um, it's a great place to start, you know, and the, the same topic is going to be the same principles for umbrella policies, just you know, like, so your listeners understand, but insurance is not the end. You know, I see a lot of clients having a false sense of security, thinking that if they're, you know, if they're ever sued, they can just solely rely on their insurance and it's going to cover them no matter what. And this is just not the case. But I, again, I, I do recommend every single person to get insurance and get as much as you can afford. Uh, but you also need to read your insurance policy, read the fine print, understand what's not covered and what the claim limit is. And when I'm at a summit talking to you know, groups of people and I sit there and I say, all right, who has insurance? Everyone's going to raise their hand. Who's read their insurance policy? Really, no one raises their hand. Who's read the fine print of the insurance policy? No one. Who knows what's not covered in your insurance policy? Who do you even know what your claim limit is? Maybe one person out of 100 will raise their hand. And so we have insurance, but insurance works by picking out a particular liability. And it says, all right, you know, we're going to insure you for this, you know, in this amount. And under only these circumstances and under these conditions. Now, the way asset protection works is we, we stay neutral on the liability side. It really doesn't matter. And what we're doing is taking the assets themselves and moving them to a safer place. You know, the two work hand in hand. Asset protection is just the next level up. And when your insurance tells you they're not going to cover it, that's where your asset protection policy comes in. Or when you have to fight both your insurance you know, provider to actually cover a claim, which I'll explain in a minute and the person suing you both at the same time. Now you're going to be really glad you have that asset protection plan. And so what you want to be in is the best condition moving forward to defend yourself when a lawsuit comes your way. Insurance really just provides capital to fight. That's about it. And just keep in mind that insurance companies don't cover you for fraud or punitive damages you know, or intentional wrongdoings. They don't pay claims that are, quote unquote, the direct result of your unlawful acts. What your listeners need to understand is the basic concepts of insurance defense. And this is that from the very first statement or a communication or even an email you made with like a buyer or a seller or a partner or you know, anyone you're doing business with, those lawsuits are going to be based on allegations of fraud. You know, they're always going to be added into the lawsuit. And of course, we're going to look at those statements like you sending an email as an intentional act because I intended to pick my hands up, type keys on a keyboard and click send. What you sent, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. That is what an intentional act is. I intended to lift my arm up and move it. You actually accidentally got hit. That was an intent to lift my arm though. These are intentional acts. And so what this means is that your insurance provider is going to say, okay, well, we're not going to cover you in this case where you potentially did some wrongdoing or committed a potential, a potential intentional act. If you think we're wrong, we'll go ahead and sue us at the same time. And so insurance helps. It's just not good enough. It's good for the small things. But then when you're dealing with like a million dollar mold issue lawsuit, it's not going to want to cover all that because they would go out of business. So you need to understand insurance is a business. Their business is collecting premiums and not paying out max claims. And then on large claims, creating legal wiggle room through their you know, insurance defense firm, their team, and they're not there to represent you. They're there to make the best financial decision and legal decision for the insurance company. Absolutely. I completely agree. That's uh, the benefit for insurance companies to be able to take all the premiums from everyone and try to limit their expenses out, right? Correct. But it's nice to have it just in case. But the, at the same time, you just mentioned- Like slip and everything. falls, like grandma slips and falls, yeah. you know, a, a person breaks an arm. Like th th you're, you're gonna, your insurance is going to cover you for things like that. Um, a gunfight in your apartment complex that you rented out to? No. You know, a massive $40 million mode claim like I had to deal with in Michigan, you're going to be fighting tooth and nail on that. Um, you know, so these type of things where you need to understand where the limitations are and that's where you need to be preventative and plan for that. Because if you didn't plan for that, 
that's where the biggest wipeouts come from. If you think of it like a pie chart, there's the things I know, the things I don't know, and the things I don't know that I don't know. If I know something, I don't need to ask for it. I am already probably prepared for it. If I don't know it, I can say like, hey, Matthew, I don't know the answer to this. Like, what, what you know this, what is it? Most people, they'll walk around and operate and own things in the I don't know what I don't know category. And then that's where the biggest loss is. So your, your object is to shrink that portion of the pie by your network as much as possible and then create a planning system around it so you don't get wiped out when something blows up in that category. And I think sometimes like just because of portrayal of real estate investing and making a lot of money, they don't categorize like real estate legal advice as or legal defense as a they categorize it as an expense, not an investment. Like I think of it more as an investment. It's an investment to protect your assets. It's not an expense to protect your assets. This investment helps you create more wealth because you're actually protecting your assets and wholly, hopefully holding able to hold more of your assets and just keep growing with a right team in place to do that. Correct. And that's where you budget for this and then also realize then this is a business that's a business expense and then you write it off yeah and if you look at the line items when you do investment properties multi-unit properties you see all the line items there's not really a line item for legal asset protection plans you know it's all just after the fact you figure it yeah. out yourself that's a part of it and i, I get it too and it really comes back down to like okay well i didn't know about that i didn't know i need this i didn't know this was gonna happen i didn't know they're gonna sue me i didn't know about mold right so it's too late you're you know you're in that trouble now and then now you're trying to fight your way out of it right Correct. Exactly. And this, that's for just a preventative planning. Like insurance is a form of asset protection. It's just a base layer level entry one spot for asset protection. You get it on your house, you get it on your car, not because I plan on hitting somebody with my car or my house catching on fire. It's just what, it's just what if, just in case. So why not do this for your biggest assets, your real estate investments that you have that you're probably setting up for cash flow so you can retire earlier plus retire from those assets later on in your life. When do people start planning for asset protection? Like, when do you see people actually start looking into it, asking you guys questions? Like, what age, not age, but like, what time period did they start actually asking about this? It, it really does vary. It's like we mentioned in the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, like a lot of people come after somebody they knew got sued and, mm -hmm. and that's their wake up call and their scare factor. Um, some of them, they're getting sued. Um, other ones come preventatively like right before like hey i'm thinking of doing this i'm an investor i understand there's risk and liability with this um what fits in my situation and then from there you know like we'll talk about there's different roadmaps and different layerings to do you know, you know like at base level like llcs then second layer you know management companies and you know once you really hit it big asset protection trust um that's just depends on where the scale on the sliding scale of wealth and assets and risk that you are. Um, so that's where you got to be careful when you talk to an attorney is if the only thing they're talking about is we're going to dump everything into this one golden nugget, you know, an LLC or whatever, be very cautious because they're not doing a proper, you know, diagnostic on you. Um, and so it's just like going in the medical field, you know, like there's not one way, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And there's ways, different treatments for certain issues. It's the same thing with asset protection. There's more than one way to skin a cat and there's more tools that we have. It's just a matter of finding the right tool for the right situation, the right client profile at the right cost. So let's talk about that a little bit too. Like, um, for example, I know some people mentioned, Hey, we should just get an LLC. It, it, it covers us on everything and we can get it locally or we can go to Delaware, for example. Uh, other part about it is like, yeah, we can get an S corp and just have one S corp for the entire, pro all the properties in mind or a C corp. Like what's the difference between the three anyways? And how does it protect you? Yeah. So let me, I'll break these down through, you know, like I'll, I, we already kind of busted the whole problem with the S corp issue and that's yeah. their shares and they're hard to get out of. Um, as I added into another layer, even if I had to go to like a Cook Island purely foreign asset protection trust and put an S corp into that, because that S corp is here based here in the US, corporations, S corp, C corps have shares. Shares can be frozen. Mm -hmm. Then to exit those positions, you're going to have to cut a really big check to the IRS because of like the deferred taxes and benefits of S corps. So I understand why you have them as a tax advantage, passive, you know, passive tax flow to you, but that's not good for, for protection wise. And then LLCs, everyone knows, and I'm going to talk about LLCs in three different layers. I'm going to talk about them as a single member disregarded entity. Then what you mentioned, you know, charging orders going to like Delaware, Wyoming and all these different states. Mm -hmm. And I want to break down anonymity because I find these are like the biggest three misconceptions of LLCs that aren't being talked about either. 
Um, so we know what LLCs are. They're holding companies for your real estate and your risky assets. And the whole principle is just to separate out some limited liability personally from the managing member, you, the creator of the of that business entity. Um, the big misconceptions with LLCs and, and the unspoken problems are single member disregarded LLCs, which, uh, you know, they, they all are created like that, jurisdiction shopping and anonymity. So the first problem generally is that most clients have these single member LLCs all in their personal name. This is how almost every single one of my clients come to me with like 15 of these. The problem <laughs> here, yeah. So the problem here is that courts now have a tendency to disregard single member LLCs and CPAs also set up LLCs as disregarded entities for tax purposes. That's great for taxes, but it's not for lawsuits. What being disregarded means is that the IRS is not taxing your business separate from you. It passes through to you personally. And because of this, you're, they're basically worthless for asset protection and liability issues like lawsuits. You know, Just like as it passes through to you tax-wise, that liability passes through to you personally. And so what you, what's that? Because <laughs> like, uh, the CPA always tells you, hey, this is the way you do it, Pastor, but they never told you about the liability part of it. Yeah. Or you can and speak to a lawyer about it because this is how we set it up for everyone. Yeah. LLC. And they don't even tell you how many LLCs do you need? Do you do one per property or you just do one for all your properties? And that's what I'll, br I'll break that down, Asher, but I'll just answer that. Now you want to do one per state right now. And so what that means is if you're like a California resident and you have a property in, you know, Kansas City, Tennessee and Ohio, you're not going to put them all into one LLC in like Delaware because there's no nexus or connection there. You're going to put one piece of property in real estate in the state that the assets at. So one in Ohio, one in Kansas City, one in Tennessee. And the reason is those state laws are different. Those assets are in those different states. So when you're getting sued through that asset, those state laws are going to be applied. You don't want a property in Ohio affecting a Tennessee property or a, or a property out in Kansas. Um, and you can't stop an asset from blowing up. You just don't want it to affect other assets. The number of assets you would put into one LLC, um, general rule of thumb, don't put more than $500,000 worth of equity in one LLC. That could change on the coast, like East Coast and West Coast, just because of the cost of an asset. You know, like it's really hard to find a property in like California, for example, under a million dollars. Yeah. Um, in the Midwest, we can probably get four units into like one Tennessee LLC. You don't really want to go more than four units or 500,000 in equity um, just because then you're just adding more risk to that LLC. So we kind of want to space it out after about four. And then the, a different layer that you would add from there would be a management company. And then um, that's how you clean up from having multiple, multiple LLC um, tax filings. You would just have all those LLCs owned by a management company. So they flow through to that one um, management company. So there's just one tax filing. But what you actually want, like I was saying, is for the single member LLCs that you're holding your real estate in to be owned, not by you, the individual, but by that second layer of protection, which should be a multi-member limited partnership. And by doing this, what you're doing is properly layering your protection. Your mid-layer, you know, that limited partnership will be owning all those LLCs and so all those LLC tax filings and those K-1s are simply going to passively flow directly through to that management company. And so you're just going to have one tax filing. What you're doing is maintaining the legal protection, but you're disregarding them for tax purposes and creating a very smooth and easy transition for fewer tax returns by adding that second layer, which is that limited partnership. The next big problem that I was mentioning, though, uh, is the confusion on where to even go and set these things up. And like, do you go to Delaware, Wyoming, Texas, Nevada? You know, like you hear about all these different states and say, oh, I'm just going to go here because I heard it or read it on the internet. And I, you know, like, I'm just going to go do that. Well, it really comes down to an issue of just what are you holding and where are you, you know, owning it at? And so I'm going to pick on California a lot here just because a lot of people live in California. California is very expensive. And so people are buying real estate in California and out of California, and California is not an asset protection friendly state. And so let's say, for example, it's California real estate that you own and you're a California resident and you set up a Wyoming LLC because you read it on the Internet or your CPA told you to go ahead and do it. And so you go ahead and you put and hold a key piece of California real estate in that Wyoming LLC 
And now you're paying California franchise tax on this out-of-state Wyoming LLC because legally you have to register it as doing business as in California because you're a resident there. What you've done is just convert your Wyoming LLC to a California LLC because you're doing business in the state of California. You're paying the franchise tax. But if you ever are sued and have a liability issue in California, the judge is going to use and apply what law? California mm -hmm. law. They're not going to apply Wyoming law. The judge is going to laugh you out of court if your attorney comes in and says, oh, well, your honor, like, yeah, the lawsuit's here and it's an injury here on this California asset. And it's a California injury, California tort law, California damage laws. But go ahead and use Wyoming law, your honor. <laughs> it, does, it doesn't work that way. And this is because a judge in California or any other state doesn't care that your LLC is in Wyoming and registered in, you know, in Wyoming with no connection there. What they care about is that you're doing business in California. It's, you know, that's where the, the, this big legal word called availed itself of the protections and laws of that state. That's the state, again, the assets in, the state the injury and damage occurred in. It's going to be that state laws that are going to apply. Um, just by simply owning an out-of-state LLC, you have to register it, like I said, as doing business in another state. You know, if you're a resident of Tennessee, you're registering it in Tennessee. You have to register it in these states, and you're doing that word. Availed yourself of the privileges and laws of the states, and you're giving that state jurisdiction. And this is just pure case law. And there's this great California case, Indian Palms Country Club Association versus Anchor Bank in 2015. This case lays out all the multiple legal standards you would have to meet to successfully beat a piercing the corporate veil argument and a jurisdictional element. And I like this case because it's a California resident setting up a Wyoming LLC and like every single element that you would have to meet. And just by nature of owning real estate in an out-of-state Wyoming LLC, you wouldn't meet any of those standards. Yeah. And so rule of thumb, just keep it simple. We create, you know, we recommend using the state that the real estate is located in because you're not gaining anything by using another state. You're just doubling your maintenance cost. And, you know, the, the, the next big one is this, you know, really mysterious hot topic of anonymity. And so what anonymity, and I think the big misconception of this is that you can just go and create this anonymous LLC and just completely disappear and ghost a lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to become a, you know, Casper on lawsuits. And this just is completely false. But I get, I literally get this question multiple times a day. You know, when your LLC is sued, you're going to be legally required to appear and defend it. And when you create like a Wyoming or Delaware out of state LLC, you're going to have to have these people called personal agents of service. Their sole job and function, and you got to pay for these services as well. Their sole job is to say, hey, congratulations, Matthew, you just got sued. Now go get a lawyer and get your butt in court. <laughs> and so, yeah. and so you pay for that too. you're paying them to do that. And you're paying them to do that too. And that's expensive. Some of them is like $900 a year to maintain that. And if you don't have that, then you don't have a legitimized LLC in those states. So then it, you didn't create a legitimized LLC. Um, and then once you're in a lawsuit, the discovery process begins. And what's even worse is that if you want secrecy to even work, also known as lying under oath, that's a one-way ticket to jail because then when a judge says, hey, you're being sued, it's an X amount of money, the potential max damage is going to be this, I need to know what assets you have in case there's a max you know, re uh, reward on you, here's an asset disclosure list, tell us everything that you own. You have two options, lie under oath and say, I own nothing, but my LLC does, your honor, and not disclose it. At that point, you're going to commit perjury and go to jail. Or you disclose your assets. And so there, there's no point of this thing, anonymity. What anonymity does is it prevents people before lawsuits from personally harassing you and saying, Matthew, you're a horrible landlord. I hate you. I'm going to go egg your house and harass you. That's what anonymity is for. It does nothing about ghosting lawsuits or say, like making you undiscoverable and unable to find. Hmm, that's a good point of it too. Yeah, people always ask about that too. Like, yeah, I just want to be hidden. I don't want people to see my names and bother me and everything. I don't want them to see me owning millions of dollars of real estate. Um, can't you just keep it, you know, keep it all private? And then if I get sued, then do they have to know about it? And like what you just said, that doesn't matter. You still have asset disclosure list here. You're just preventing people from like bothering you, the normal people. Correct. And what you want to do is, and where like the magic really comes from is when you add that third layer of protection. So we have layer number one, LLCs and insurance. Layer number two, a limited partnership. And I can even break down why a limited partnership later on versus a yeah. LLC. Um, then the third layer would be an asset protection trust and putting them in the strongest jurisdictions that you can reach. And then there's a big distinction between like domestic and offshore ones. Um, but 
the reason why I really like um, the limited partnerships are oh, – let me just grab a sip of water. Real hey, quick. go for it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. A lot of great information here. I love it. This is a fun topic to always discuss, especially you know, coming from a, a partner like you to be able to discuss that really helps um, the audience understand a little bit more you know, from your perspective. Yeah. And so, you know, limited partnerships or family limited partnerships, when you use them for asset protection, they're called asset management limited partnerships. And they're like LLCs. And they also have some charging order protection. And I like them better because they have a very distinct delineation between the managing partner called the general partner and the minority partner who does not. Um, we like having both the general partner interest and limited partner interest. And we use the limited part, you know, the, the LP as the starting point for clients. Um, and this is the holding company. And then you add the bridge trust or the asset protection trust, which we'll get into next, as the asset protection component. It's really the combination of the two and how they work together that you want to capitalize on. But some of the very specific reasons I prefer, and specifically an Arizona limited partnership versus like a Wyoming LLC or a Delaware LLC or others are you have what's uh, exclusive charging order protection in Arizona as the only remedy for creditors of a partnership. And that's just because it's a limited partnership. So exclusively of a partnership, you have an actual statutory distinction between general partners and limited partners. And this is by statute. And this is better than LLCs because LLCs can only do this by an operating agreement. And a court and a judge is left to his own interpretation of that. And so, it, and you see how judges are nowadays. Like it just depends on what size of the bed a judge wakes up on. And, and then there's this code ARS section 29-333, which specifically allows for a limited partner to make what's called a unilateral withdrawal from the limited partnership, you know, on a predefined event of duress. So we would predefine a, uh, an event of duress as like a lawsuit. And this is unique only to Arizona. And I'm surprised on this. And it's exactly what you need to allow for an asset protection trust to then disconnect from that limited partnership holding company during that duress. And it can, and that can't be done with an LLC without exposing yourself to claims of a prohibited fraudulent transfer. And so those alone are really good. Um, but a few others are the Arizona limited per, uh, partnership is perpetual versus, um, you know, LLCs. You always have to do annual reportings and filings. Um, Arizona doesn't require listing the limited partners. So you only need to list the general partner. And so by nature, there's some built-in statutory um, privacy. And then for tax filing purposes, your limited partner can't be a disregarded entity. Um, but LLCs, with just one member, so a single member LLC, they're automatically considered disregarded entities. And that's not good for, again, we talked about liability issues and lawsuits. And so that's why the LP works. And in my opinion, I like it better than LLCs at that mid layer. So you base layer, start with LLCs, put your real estate into that. Next layer, limited partnership owns those LLCs and all your risky, non-risky assets you can put into there as well. And you can do that with even with one property, you can get LLC and create an LP right after that, especially if Correct. you have some good equity in it. And it makes sense too. You mentioned like Arizona. I didn't know Arizona has that kind of ability to have extra protections versus an LLC. And especially like you mentioned, a single single LLC with um, that makes a huge difference. And a lot of people never talk about this topic at all. They don't mention anything. They just say get LLC, you'd be fine, you're done. Well, most people don't. I think of it um, like fishing a lot of firms, they don't specialize. And then they look to see, okay, we want to make money. Um, what can we cast the largest net with? And mm -hmm. everybody can use an LLC. Yep. And they stop there versus if you go to a specialist and this is all that we do. Well, now we know the different tools and the different scapels and the different types of bandages and the different thread needles and all of that, that we use to fit your best situation right there. And so the, the second layer and third layer, the limited partnership and the asset protection trust really is where the magic starts coming for asset protection. And you start looking to different states and different countries. Um, but that comes when you're at a higher net worth. At that base layer LLC level, you know, like what is it? You know, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Yep. It, the, the, the basic principles apply there. Keep it simple. <laughs> LLC in the state the asset's at. Then as you grow, layer up. The next layer, limited partnership, then asset protection trust. So you mentioned LPs already. And how does the asset protection plus uh, play in? And then you mentioned domestic versus international. Like when do you, when do you start going into 
uh, LPs? At what like what dollar amount do you start going to LPs, and what dollar amount do you start going to asset protection trusts? Yeah, great question. So when you start out and you have nothing, LLC insurance. We start talking about management companies and limited partnerships. When you have, I would say around two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand in equity, because generally you have multiple units, and so like generally, like I see around two to five, and they're in different states. And so what you need to do is start adding that that management level, that limited partnership, to clean up your accounting and your tax filings, so you're not eating at your return of investment. Give you another layer of protection. So think of it like a moat around your castle. Now we're creating another moat, another another defense line. And then it allows us when you get to about 1 million net to add the asset protection trust. Because then at that point, when you're getting into like a bridge trust, which the combination of a management company and the LLC, you're looking at around like total full package, like 29,000. It makes sense financially to spend 29,000 to protect, you know, 1.2 million or more, because for less than the price of your car, you're protecting your whole, your whole legacy. Is it 29k a fixed cost or is it one time cost? And yeah, then... so one time it's a one time fixed cost, and that's about on average of what you see, you know, for 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 across the spectrum, um, this type of protection to cost, uh, to, to cost, um, and you just layer up as you go. Start out with the LLCs when you hit around 250 to 500 thousand, or you have multiple assets in different states. That's when you need the management company. And then when you have a lot of assets, you're like, wow, I became a really good investor. We got a lot. Plus maybe I'm a doctor and I have a high malpractice area um, of practice. Then we start talking about asset protection trust. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially if you're a doctor, you have a lot of liabilities there too, or um, you know, an athlete, and then you have this much money. There's like, like you mentioned earlier, you have a lot of targets on you. So, including the twenty nine k as a investment towards your investments, that is uh, just and you like you mentioned, you can write this off anyways. Yeah, and, and uh, you're creating the protection, extra protection layers, your moat to make it stronger. Exactly, and that asset protection trust is the final layer. Um, it's your full bad weather outer shell layer. And trusts have been the longest lasting entities of all entities and go back to even the Roman times, you know, for holding assets. They would go fight a war, put them into a, a type of trust. Someone would watch over their assets for them. Um, but when done right, they're just very strong and can be sculpted to fit how you need them. And they can morph as you need them without dealing with funding issues. So I just love trust and having a trust at the very top of your planning is just very powerful. And this is where creating an asset protection trust or more importantly, picking the proper jurisdiction comes into play. And trusts come in a lot of different flavors and types. You know, the standard 101 trust that everybody's familiar with if you're investing in real estate or not investing in real estate, but just in general. Um, it came around in the 60s. This is your revocable living trust, you know, because trusts don't die. So when you do, you actually, you know, and you fund them correctly, your trust then transfers ownership to the title into the trust. You don't have to go through the courts or probate. And it's changed the landscaping of just basic estate planning. Then from an investor standpoint, you have land trusts, which are base level 101. Um, they just hold your land and you connect them to an LLC. But land trusts don't have any protection in and of themselves. They're only as strong as an LLC um, working with that LLC. From there, you have higher levels of trust, and these are called asset protection trusts. And these really came about in the nineteen, or you know, like the early nineteen eighties. And what these really are are called self-settled spendthrift trusts, meaning they're created by you for yourself as your own beneficiary with creditor protection in the form of some spendthrift provisions. This lets you protect your assets while you're living, for, you know, while you're living, which the other ones don't, from creditors and not having to relinquish control. The difference is they allow you to protect the assets, not just from your, you know, like for your grandkids, but for yourself, which weren't allowed in the past. And so now the difference with asset protection trust really comes down to just where you set them up in. And why it's so important is that the laws and the rules that govern you and trust and business entities are different from one jurisdiction to another. And this means from one country to another, one state to another, and one country to another. And so you really have three options. You can establish them domestically here in the U.S., which has their pitfalls offshore, which have very strong strength um, at a cost. And then there's a hybrid that you can kind of combine the best of both worlds with called a bridge trust. Nice. Just taking some notes here. 
Yeah, and so like I can break down the difference if you want. Yeah, I would love to hear the difference between uh, you know domestic or international trust and see how does that work and how do you bridge it. Yeah, and so I'm going to do it through like a historical context because I think if you if you can understand the history of it, you'll understand you know the strengths and weaknesses of everything. And so the offshore, like I mentioned, came first in 1984 in the famous Cook Islands. They created an asset protection trust. I personally prefer the power of going offshore if and when you need it, because it's the best home court advantage. And the power of the foreign offshore trust is that it has what's called statutory non-recognition. That's why it's the global gold standard, even after 40 years. What this means is that your U.S. judgment is worthless in the Cook Islands. You would have to start your case all over from scratch, facing the highest legal standard in the world, the murder standard, which is beyond the reasonable doubt. The plaintiff or the person suing you is going to have to front all the court costs, which we don't have that system here in the U.S., and flying a judge from New Zealand. They can't take their U.S. attorneys with them. They can't use contingency fee-based attorneys out there. Um, and if you lose, they pay. Or if they lose, they pay, which we don't have that system in the U.S. either. Um, and there's only a one-year statute of limitation. So by the time they realize they have to sue you there, most likely they already have, have ran past that statute of limitations. But if you're purely for... What's that? That sounds like a great benefit when you, you just named all these different things I was thinking about. I was like, wow, that's actually really powerful. It really is powerful. And it's the, that's why for 40 years, it's a global gold standard. And it's even like here in the US, we have really great, solid 40 years of case law supporting all of this. And most of all the cases that we have all come from the Cook Islands, even up to the Supreme Court. We have famous cases like the Anderson case, the Slow case, and the Grant case. Um, and these are with people doing really bad things and setting, you know, like, of tax avoidance and Ponzi schemes. And even in these bad situations, which I don't condone anybody doing the government, the man, the super creditor coming after you who can print resources, can't even pierce these cook Island trusts. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but everything has a flaw, right? Yeah. You know, to be purely foreign, not everybody needs that level of protection. And for most, it's just overkill and they're really expensive. You're talking about like $50,000 to be purely foreign. And then on average five to $10,000 a year in annual fees just to maintain it. So this is a hard pill to swallow for most people. And so what you see are people who don't want to deal with the cost and then the IRS hurdles, because if you're purely foreign, you have to also then disclose the assets and purely foreign asset protection trust. They then choose, I'm just going to go and use these domestic asset protection trusts here in the US. They came about 10 years later. Um, we actually brought, not we as in me, but you know, like the dom domestically, uh, Alaska brought in the people from the Cook Islands to help create their asset protection statutes. Then not to be outdone, you had like Wyoming, Delaware, Nevada follow suit. Um, and now we have about 20 states with domestic asset protection statutes. California is not one of them. Uh, <laughs> but the problem with purely domestic asset protection trusts and why they fail is on effectiveness. And that's because of the U.S. Constitution and the full faith and credit clause. You can't run from lawsuits and judgments. So if you're a California resident with a Nevada Asset Protection Trust and you're getting sued in you know, California, you can't just be like, well, I have a Nevada Asset Protection Trust. And it's like, well, great, sorry, we still have to give full faith and credit to the lawsuit here. Um, and also there's this horrible case, Kilker v. Steelman, 2012, which is a California case um, to where they're no longer recognizing out-of-state asset protection trusts and they're piercing them. So if you're a California resident and think you're going to go to Nevada or another state to create an asset protection trust, Kilker v. Steelman, 2012, sorry, they're not recognizing them anymore. Um, and so because of the case law we're seeing, I'm not a big fan of any a purely domestic asset protection trust or anything that doesn't have an offshore component built into it. That's why I prefer a hybrid, which is called the bridge trust, which came about 20 years ago. Um, and what they're doing is just combining the best of both worlds. It's a fully registered foreign Cook Island trust, and it's already registered offshore from day one um, with an offshore trustee on standby who did their due diligence on you waiting. Um, and then we just build the bridge back so that the IRS classifies the trust as a domestic U.S. trust. And we do that by staying in compliance with this two-part test under USC Section 7701. And that's called the court test and control test. And the benefit of this is, is it's cheaper to set up. You know, like just the trust itself would be, uh, you know, 23000 and then, so that's a lot cheaper than 50. And then to maintain it is $2,100 a year. And so then you get 
the offshore strength and you know of statutory non-recognition, but then you don't have to go through all the IRS hurdles of and foreign disclosures because the trust is actually classified domestically. And so you have the kind of best of both worlds situations here. I'm classified domestically, so it's cheaper to start and I don't have to deal with the IRS disclosures and really none at all because it's a grantor's trust. But if I ever have that doomsday scenario and I need the strength of statutory non-recognition in the Cook Islands, I had that tool in my toolbox because all we do is drop compliance with the USC section. And we do that by removing you as the trustee. You're now purely foreign Cook Islands offshore asset protection trust with statutory non-recognition in your pocket. And now you have your full strong system. Lawsuit goes away. You pay the settlement, generally pennies on the dollar because you're not collectible then we can reestablish the domestic compliance. Right. That's actually really smart and really good way to do it. And you're also saving a huge amount of money and you're getting the protections and the benefits of being domestic and foreign. And you can, like you just mentioned, you can um, take them out of the trust as well. So that's kind of cool. It's set up hybrid setup. Whoever, whoever first created it when they did it, that's a nice um, way to get going. So would people yeah, still it's my, par- it? it's my, it's my partner that, I, that created it. He did. Oh, yeah. even better. That's kind of cool. Like you guys created a system that people use and it's been around for over 20 years. Yeah. And it's been tested. You know, like we've had to pull the trigger, you know, a couple hundred times. <laughs> so, and not very many asset protection plans and systems can actually say, how has it held up in court? You know, most of the time people will say, well, we don't know. We haven't been challenged yet. Yeah. And then you guys said it held up a hundred, hundreds, hundreds of times already. Yeah. Well, and you also, it's also, it is a fully foreign asset you know, Cook Island Asset Protection Trust and those fully foreign Cook Island trusts have over 40 years of straight case law. And just that case law itself goes to the foreign element of the trust. And so you have, you know, those cases that you can rely on as well. Nice. So for example, let's say that, you know, we're about to wrap up the show soon, but I really love all the conversations we're having about it. So let's talk about this. Um, right now, people are, let's say they own assets, they own investments, they have over a million dollar equity. Um, you mentioned to start off, they really should get the LLC, get the LP and start talking to you guys about asset protection trust as well and figuring out if they want to do a hybrid system, if it makes sense financially for their their current assets in in mind. Um, the part about it too is, let's say they have their system, but it's totally screwed up. Can you help fix everything <laughs> they have? Yeah, that's how most people come to me. Completely, completely a mess. And so it, it is pretty easy to do. You know, like most of the time, they have um, all the LLCs in their own personal name with like a few Wyoming LLCs somewhere stuck in that structure. And so we generally we will ditch the Wyoming LLCs that serve no purpose. Um, connect all those LLCs out of their personal name into the management company, which then they, they also could own syndications passively. Those would go into passively into the management company. You would create a business bank account in that management company. So it's easier to keep an accounting ledger. It's cleaner. Um, and then you just add the asset protection trust on top. And then that, and that's where the, the, the protection comes into play. Okay, nice. So basically, you help them clean it all up. Um, you know, at the same time, when they're looking at this, hopefully, you know, their CPA or another CPA you guys recommend who understands this fully uh, works with them so they can manage their books financially and in order. Correct. And then either if they have a CPA and they're not familiar with the system, we'll just send out a, a letter and document to the CPA with here's the laws, here's the statutes that we're using, here's how to file taxes on this. And then that goes into like what mo- a lot of firms are doing now, annual fees. You know, like we need to talk to your CPA. Your CPA is going to want to talk to us. We're going to talk to your wealth managers. You're going to want to talk to us. Instead of you being afraid to have your whole team talk to a lawyer on an hourly basis, just go to a base annual charge. A base annual charge. So what's the, what's, for example, what's the base annual charge on average? Yeah, for us, we charge two th- for, you know, like the full package, $2,100 annually, which would go to maintaining the trust and the limited partnership. Plus, instead of charging you billable hours, it just goes to being like, hey, Brian, this is what we're doing. I'm buying this, selling this. My CPA has a question. My wealth manager has a question. So whoever I need to talk to, um, we want you to be comfortable talking to us and not saying like, well, I don't want to talk to my lawyer because I don't want to spend like $600 hour charge. Yeah, that's the part to add up to. And I understand the point of it. Yeah, $600 an hour is a lot of money. But at the same time, $2,100 a year to have this kind of protection and trust and a team working with you. And even if you're paying per hour, you're not spending like 
multiple hours asking questions because your CPA kind of knows what they're doing. Your wealth manager and the lawyer knows what they're doing. So you're really just kind of defining what you're doing today, what you want to do tomorrow, your goal. And then here's the simplest way to get there, right? Make sure Correct. And and it should be pretty quick, pretty quick conversations. Okay. So that makes sense completely. And for example, let's say that someone set it all up. Does the CPA ever file things wrong? And then are you able to go back and fix it? Like they... Yeah, your CPA would have to go and fix that. But generally, we work with your CPA and they'll ask questions and then like we'll show them the statutes. Okay, your logic is not correct on this and this is why. Here's the statute in case for this um, and just help them along. And then once th- once we give them the answer, it's really cut and dry for them. Okay, and some CPAs I know, they do so, such massive volumes of uh, taxes every year. They're like, I don't have time for this. You can just go somewhere else, you know? Yeah, and that, and that happens as well. Or sometimes people realize they outgrew their CPA. Yeah, And then that's where you need to get a better CPA who is more knowledgeable on investments and protection strategies and more of a, you know, higher net worth CPA. Um, Like I said, like different CPAs, like different attorneys, different doctors, you know, like sometimes you just might outgrow your CPA. Yeah. And even sometimes your lawyers too, the ones who are just doing LLCs and not asset protection, right? So you really need to find a really good core team who understands full asset protection, all the different legal rules, tax rules, and how they yeah. work together. And well, it's just like life. Yeah. Yeah, as you grow, different different areas of life grow. You're, you can outgrow friends. You outgrow f- different areas of your life. Those are, those adjust. Same with everybody else in, in your unit. They adjust as well. Okay, perfect. Yeah, exactly. You can outgrow coaches too and you know people you you look up to because you're just going to the next level and your goal is to really bring people to the, to the top. And that's why, like you mentioned, you guys have over $5 billion of assets uh, that you guys help manage in the sense of protection-wise. And that's kind of cool to see that you're helping all these high net worth individuals do really smart things for them to protect their assets against you know predators out there. No, and, and that's the goal is just you don't know what you need to protect yourself from. It's like the unknown. And that's where asset protection really comes in is the big things that can wipe you off that you're like, man, I did not see that coming. I wish I had this in place. So I think some of the takeaways I get here is that really whether you're starting investing now or you are already been investing for a while, you really need to think and add into your plan that uh, legal support asset protection is a investment. It's not an expense and it should be part of your line items as a part of the, just the financial cost of it. But really it's important because you need to cre- keep creating generational wealth, protecting your assets from predators out there and learning everything you don't know. You need some uh, the right people to, who do know to protect you, right? No, absolutely. You know, I always mm-hmm. say King Arthur wasn't the smartest man at the table you know, his nights were, he just was able to get the access to the information that he needed to make the best decision at the time. So if you're the smartest person at your table, switch the people up or switch tables, you know? Yeah. And so that's where I always try to fall in line is I try to be quiet to be the last one to speak and be the dumbest person at the table because I want to learn as much as I possibly can before I make a decision. Um, And the rest of it is just, you know, mimic the rich. You want to be successful. They leave clues. Right. How do people, um, so let's say people want to get started now. They actually want to learn more about asset protection, learn about your firm, how to work with you guys, why, why they should start, uh, when and why they should start contacting you guys, you know? Yeah. Um, jump on my website, www.btblegal.com. I have it more set up as an educational platform to where people can go in, watch videos. There's a bunch of case law on there, a huge frequently asked question section, which will cover most of anybody's question if they go through like the hundreds of them. And I'd rather just have you have information. So when you start down this road, you know, you're, you're armed, you know, from, from shysters, like the easiest way to say it, you know, you have more information, you're going to make a better decision. Uh, You can email me, Brian, B-R-I-A-N at btblegal.com. I do a one free consultation and I just rather have you have, again, information, even if you don't work with me, I'd rather you have that knowledge to then not get taken advantage of. I like that a lot because I know a lot of lawyers out there, I know they're they're all busy and I get it. Some some of them don't offer any free consultations because they're so busy and, and I totally under, understand and appreciate that. And it's nice that you offer some um, some advice that way people can get started. At least they know. Yeah, uh, I, think general, that's a bad um, business. I think that's a bad business on their part is because then people are going to want to shop around. Yeah. And then if you're charging a hundred, some people $300 just for $600. a presentation. Hi, mm-hmm. my name's John. Hi, yeah. John. This introduction took five minutes and I'm already billing you $45 for that. That's a waste because that yeah. goes against counterintuitive to people's instincts. So you should allow people an opportunity to shop around, get information. Then most likely they'll come back to the table. 
Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that because I hate it too. I see people charge four fifty, six hundred dollars an hour. Like I'm just asking you a general question about my scenario. Do you even do this or not? I'm already paying yeah. you just to ask my scenario. That's it, it, tough to follow, right? I know yeah. you're number one lawyer, but at the same time, I can't ask my question without paying you three hundred dollars just to ask. Yeah, and so I'm not snobby. Like I was, what last year rated, you know, best attorney of America last year, and so like I still will do a free consultation for you, even if you're not my client profile, just, I think that's an honorable thing to do and let people have education. Yeah. I really appreciate it too. And I think that just by getting started, really check out your website, you know, btblegal.com, really take a look at it, read it, watch it. I know sometimes legal work gets hard, tiring to watch as sometimes you fall asleep on it because it gets dry, but there's actually really good lawyers who don't make it dry and really is a good way to build knowledge and understand the protection policies in place to help you. Right. Correct. And I try to do a non dry, boring way of talking about things and then have like shorts and cut up. So there's a lot of information. And if you like to read, that's why I put the case law out there, you know, like just click <laughs> it, start reading some case law and our analysis of it and how it applies. Yeah. And that's funny too. Like I remember one of my um, clients, he's a lawyer. He actually read the whole HOA document, highlighted everything. And then like, well, you can't change it. This is the HOA. You either buying it or not buying it. It's like, ah, you know, and I was like, that's, and everyone's like, wow, you're, you're pretty impressive. You read the whole thing overnight and highlight everything. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, I wish I could change it for you, but you can't, you know? <laughs> cool. Thank you so much, Brian, for being on our show today. Um, so glad to have you here and everyone be sure to reach out to Brian, uh, check out his website for any questions and really look into asset protection. It really matters nowadays more than ever. There's a lot of predators out there and we don't want to be a part of that and really understand that this is a financial investment to protect your assets. Hopefully you build a lot of assets and feel free to reach out to us as well for any real estate investing. Um, and then we'll talk to you guys soon. Have a great day. Thanks for being on the truth about real estate podcast and we'll see you guys in the next one.